Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from ABV through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 3. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax. I'm the division head of dermatology now at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your center, but this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of the series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. And one of those experts is Dr. Michelle Ramin. Michelle is a clinical associate professor of dermatology at the University of Calgary. She practices in general dermatology and pediatric dermatology. She's also the vice chair of Camp Liberté Society, which is a camp for children with skin disorders, and the chair of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, known as PEDRA. By the way, they have an annual conference. You may talk to Michelle if you're interested in participating. In addition to that, Michelle's also the vice president of the Canadian Dermatology Association. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the very generous introduction. <laughs> you know what? To be honest with you, Michelle, I know what you do, and that was barely scratching the surface of the things that you do in dermatology in Canada. So that was just a real short snippet. So today, what I was hoping we could talk about would be uh, some aspects of pediatric dermatology. I know that a lot of us do our training in pediatric dermatology um, as just part of our regular derm practice. And I think that over time, there becomes a bit of a discomfort, um, especially when it comes to systemic treatments or more complex pediatric things. And so I was thinking that it might be nice to chat a little bit about how you manage uh, systemic treatments in pediatric populations. Would that, that be Sure, cool? sounds great. I'm happy to uh, share my methods. They, they might be on the conservative side, as I think I mentioned to you previously, but I'm happy to share how I do things. You know, conservative's not a bad idea, especially when it comes to kids. So I think most dermatologists would have some pediatric uh, portion of their practice. And obviously, there's a lot of places across the country where access to fellowship trained pediatric dermatology is quite rare. So I thought it would be nice to kind of go through maybe the two main areas that people would be dealing with systemic things or maybe not have access, um, which would be psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. So maybe psoriasis first, because I think we have a few other therapeutic options. But when you see a patient with psoriasis, let's say that they're under 12 years of age, what kind of things are going through your mind when you're trying to assess where they're going to fit in that spectrum of like how aggressive you're going to treat them? That's a good question. And I think you're right. Psoriasis is the place to start because there are a few more agents available for these patients. But Ultimately, I think for all, all patients, not just the pediatric patients, the first thing we're really looking at is, uh, is their compliance and their understanding of the condition. Are they doing the things that were prescribed? And is there something that can be optimized that might give them better control that would be straightforward? And then I'm thinking about their comorbidities. What are the things that I could potentially treat at the same time as treating their psoriasis to make their treatment more efficient? And then really when it comes to adding on systemic therapy, I think in a lot of cases in centers where you may not have access to a pediatric dermatologist, we may also not have very convenient access to phototherapy. And there is an additional level of challenges when it comes to getting an entire family engaged in phototherapy as, a, as opposed to an individual patient or adult <laughs> patient. 
Um, so then, yes, definitely thinking about the different systemic therapies, either conventional therapies, often requ- which are often still required, um, at least as a in a trial. Okay, let me say that again. Just that part. Uh, conventional sure. therapy. Uh, thinking about, I guess, thinking first about conventional therapies particular even if you're considering a biologic at from the very beginning because many insurance companies still require a trial of a systemic therapy a conventional systemic before you we can get approval for biologics and that's not always the case it's sometimes it's I think it's worth a try uh, shooting off a biologic application right at the beginning when I'm waiting potentially for some of the workup to come back um, just to see if I can hit a home run before I have to put a patient through other conventional systemic therapies that I know are not going to give them good disease control. You know, I never really thought about that phototherapy piece, but I think that is something that's really important to think about for feasibility. I mean, beyond access, even if it's next door, still having a child and a parent and everything get in um, would be a challenge. Thinking about, so when I see a patient first off, oftentimes if I'm thinking about systemic therapies, um, I give them like their blood work requisition and their chest x-ray and I do all that right from the outset. Do you tend to do that with kids or do you try to develop more of a a rapport before suggesting blood work? Like how do you, <laughs> or do you just like be like needle time kids? I think it really depends on the family and the kids. Sometimes these families have suffered for a long time and they come in primed, like they are ready to do whatever it will take to get their kid better. And in particular, because I work in a tertiary care center, we have, you know, a lab on site that's used to taking blood from kids. And so that's another um, sort of strategy that I use to convince children to get blood work at their potentially a first visit is the fact that, you know, we have techs that know how to take blood from babies and their veins are giant in comparison to a newborn. But um, realistically, yeah, I think it the especially in, in the COVID era where we're trying to provide really efficient care in a single visit, it is feasible to kind of assess what they've had so far, um, optimize their topical therapy, maybe give them the requisitions to get their baseline investigations done and even put in a biologic application with a backup prescription for a systemic therapy, a conventional systemic therapy. That That is kind of the most efficient route in this era where we're trying to have people come to see us in person less often. Right. And so let's say that all things are equal. Patient doesn't have any joint symptoms. They're, say, a seven-year-old who you've done all that optimization, uh, topical. They're not accessing. They can't access phototherapy. What would be, typically speaking, in your practice, your first-line systemic therapy for skin-only you know, moderate psoriasis, because I I think to your point, if you're able to access biologic right from the outset, like amazing, which will be obviously provincially and plan dependent, but what's your, okay, now you're forced in the corner of a conventional systemic, where do you go? When I'm still waiting for the patient's baseline investigations to come back, I tend to stick to topicals in psoriasis patients. And then once I have their, once I have their baseline testing back, then oftentimes I'm looking either at methotrexate and in patients who have better coverage, maybe a combination methotrexate with cyclosporin at the beginning to give them a little bit of a boost, get their skin clearer more quickly. And that, but ultimately really methotrexate's really kind of, I think still the workhorse for um, moderate to severe psoriasis in, in children over the longer term. Right. 
Probably a little bit more, um, yeah, longer term data, obviously. Um, in terms of your workup for methotrexate in a in a child, is it the same as for adults for you? Like, you know, for adults, I'm doing hepatitis serology, blah, blah, blah. Does it look the same for a child? Yeah, so for me, it does. And that's maybe disputable. And I've talked about this with some of my ID colleagues. I think the challenge now is that we live in a global world where people actually travel a lot and have a lot of exposures. And we have patients who come from different backgrounds who may or may not identify those risk factors when you kind of screen them. So Mm -hmm. although it might be an overabundance of caution, I also think that because we're, we're having new, there are always new therapies that are becoming available. And because I do kind of think of methotrexate as a as kind of a gateway drug to biologics and potentially other systemic therapies in the future, I, I, I tend to do, I tend to even get a TB test done at the beginning now or quantifuron okay. just Way because I know it's going to give yeah. me more options in the long run. So not only did you use the term gateway drug, which I love, but you also utilize my least favorite uh, term of the pandemic, which is an abundance of caution. But I'll let this one pass. Um, <laughs> when you're doing, and when you're starting methotrexate in kids, um, how do you, so, you know, when I was a resident, I remember learning people say, okay, give a test dose. And then you're checking the blood one week later. And then you're checking them, you know, and I don't, practically speaking, I don't do that um, for adults. I check blood work a couple weeks in and once a month until I see them back. How do you monitor with a younger population? Yeah, I guess my experience, again, has been very influenced by COVID. So, and the, the truth is that cytopenias are actually pretty rare. So, mm-hmm. you know, in some of the textbooks or some of the, like the way that I think I learned how to monitor methotrexate in adults was like once a week for four weeks and then once a month for five, up to six months and then every two to three months. But it's just not logistically practical. And especially with COVID, we were really thinking about like how can we be safe but also efficient. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things that I did definitely cut down with methotrexate. So methotrexate... I think now I get blood work after four weeks. I don't do a test dose. I dose for pediatrics. The dosing is 0.2 to 0.7 milligrams per kilogram. And there is also um, a milligram per meter squared dosing that I would have to look up to be sure, but I think it's like 15 to 20 milligrams per meter squared. And so it, it ends up being a slightly lower dose. Sometimes I find in kids I do have to kind of push the dose up a little bit to get efficacy, but it tends to be really well tolerated, even without the folic acid, like they don't get the same stomach. Um, I haven't noticed anyways that many of the these like otherwise healthy kids get a lot of stomach upset. They're not tired the next day, like their parents. I, t- I counsel <laughs> them a lot about, you know, take it on a Friday night so you can have a down day on Saturday. And the parents are like, I didn't get that down day. I thought I was sleeping in. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to to maybe it's like their young healthy bone marrow and livers they just don't have the same number of side effects okay so let's take a question from a dermatology resident right now you've reached the world headquarters of the dermalogs podcast Hi, Dr. Ramin. This is Lydia Ushen. I'm a resident R1 in dermatology at McGill University. And my question is, when prescribing methotrexate and other systemics for children, obviously you need to talk to the parents or the caregivers about the risk and side effects of the medication. But my question is, at what age do you start discussing this directly with the child? Thank you very much. That is a really good question. I mean, I think once kids start to be around 
I would say somewhere between five and eight, and it kind of depends on the child. I start talking to them a little bit about the common things like the that you know you might feel a little bit tired or not like yourself the day afterwards you might feel a little bit sick to your stomach you might not be as hungry as normal um, that might be all that I would tell um, mm-hmm. a, a five to eight year old about methotrexate and then I would obviously counsel their their parent more in detail I do right. usually tell the children too that they will need to get blood work done and I just tell them that it's our it's our safety check to know that everything inside their body is working okay with the medicine so that it's safe for their body and safe for their skin. That's so a nice way I, to put it. I, yeah, I, I guess you have to kind of try and manage the expectations early on too with methotrexate. So I, mm-hmm. I do, the other thing I, I guess the last thing that I kind of tell kids about is that it's going to take a little while to work. So they'll have to keep using their creams and they shouldn't be discouraged because it wouldn't it would be great if they had any changes before six to eight weeks and but that I wouldn't be expecting much before then okay I guess flipping over so that's methotrexate what what about cyclosporin so say you say you make that choice for cyclosporin would that for you would that typically be the kid that maybe is a lot more severe or has symptoms associated with their psoriasis that you just want to get under control like who's your cyclosporin kid yeah, I think it would be like the person who's frustrated with methotrexate. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes that's the situation, or or a child where I can see that the family we're close to losing the family because they've been through so many tr- topicals or been through so many different things or different suggestions, and I feel like we just need to try and get them turned around quickly mm-hmm. so that they can have they can kind of get inspired to think that they can get better again. Uh, the other big challenge with cyclosporin is coverage because it's very expensive. Right. And then yeah. for peds, it has to be compounded. So it's okay. even more expensive. And so it's it's like in the order of hundreds of dollars. I think it's like 300 to $600. Wow. Like it's a crazy amount yeah. actually to ask a family to spend who doesn't have insurance. Yeah. Um, so, Versus methotrexate that's super cheap. Yeah, methotrexate is super cheap. And the other thing, well, even the compounding for methotrexate, so compounding is always expensive. It's about, I think it costs like 50 to $60 to compound mm-hmm. something depending on the medication. But methotre- with methotrexate, there's actually a trick where you can kind of dissolve the tablets into oh. water and like mix them into maple syrup or some other kind of like flavored <laughs> syrup. For people who really have no uh, resources, that can be yeah. really life-saving. Um, to be able to get methotrexate at a price because, you know, it's just like, it's like a few dollars a month if you're getting the tablets, right? Yeah, it is quite cheap. If you have someone that has access or whatever for cyclosporin, do you Mm -hmm. tend to do, again, similarly, do you you tend to do um, the same type of monitoring that you do in the adult population or do you do more or less for, I mean, again, kids' kidneys are probably working pretty well and hypertension's rare, but, you know... um, do you have any specific concerns? Yeah, if their baseline blood work looks okay. So I guess on the longer term with cyclosporin, there are more concerns about uh, the long-term effect mm-hmm. on ch- pediatric renal function. But I think in the short term, it's unusual to have side to have you know find abnormalities too. So even with cyclosporin, I think the I have tried to get like a two-week blood work and then after that every two months, okay. as opposed to previously, I probably would have. I would have tried to get every two weeks for two months and then switched every two months, but it's just not a luxury 
I feel like the blood work, blood work is like such a luxury now. <laughs> I know people wait weeks to have it done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they basically are having it done by the time you want them to do it the next time. Yeah. Now, but cyclosporin is, is really, I think is really a good option. And for patients who have coverage can be yeah. a really good option. The, uh, the other thing, and people probably know this, you probably know it's from your adult practice too. There's like those two, for, there's those two formulations, yes. Neural and Sandimune. Yeah. And the Sandimune, I think the way that you can recognize is that, is that it smells bad. Okay. And then there are some patients I've had who got Sandimune, which is less bioavailable, and it really actually doesn't seem to work as well. As so that's one tip yeah. I would give the, I guess, the residents, that if, you're, if your patient is failing cyclosporin, ask them if it smells bad. I think it actually smells, <laughs> it actually smells like kind of skunk-like. Like I've had patients say they had to open it the night before yeah. and let it air out so that Good they could God. take it because it was so malodorous. <laughs> I don't know another way what, to say it. Stinky is how the kid might put it, but you know, yeah. I, I malodorous is probably yeah. more medically appropriate. Uh, yeah. That is a good tip. But to be to be honest with you, I didn't even know that. But um, that's a great tip because I do think different formulations obviously make a difference. Yeah. When you're using cyclosporin, are you always using it as a means to you know the next step or to a biologic, or do you ever have patients where you like you shut her down with cyclosporin, and then you can wean them off it successfully, and then they don't require a systemic treatment? You know, I yeah. and again, this seems like a question that every some people may say, well, why don't you know the answer to that? And it's just because I rarely have kids with severe psoriasis because they see I'm in Halifax, I have pediatric, mm-hmm. you know, I have, I have colleagues that do peds derm clinics, so I don't manage that. But you know, I do have a few kids that you know they're terrible psoriasis i give them some topical planning okay they're going to need something and they come back and they're clear and like what the it's just not so unusual it doesn't happen in adults but um that was a really prolonged way of me asking you the question that i started with about cyclosporin maybe it has something to do with like the memory of the psoriasis in the skin because usually when when kids have psoriasis they haven't had it for that long true and a lot of times strep is a trigger yeah. So there's a certain number of those patients that are, I guess, just guttate or just strep, strep triggered. And those ones, I think there's like 50% of those patients. I think it's in the literature. It's like 40 to 50% of those patients actually don't go on to develop plaque psoriasis. Yeah. So maybe sometimes we pick up some of those and they do get better. I do think some patients, it's kind of like prednisone for eczema. I, I mm-hmm. think of, I don't really use a lot of prednisone, but I tend to use more cyclosporin. And I think sometimes a short course can get people back on track with their topicals too and get help them to achieve better control so that their disease becomes more manageable and then they're able to continue with just topicals. Fair point. You know, and I was going to say maybe it is uh, applying topicals to, you know, you, you have more compliance when the parent's applying it. But then I hate to admit this on a podcast, but my own son, um, when I'm applying topical for him I, I gotta be honest I, I forget most days and I'm and I'm a dermatologist it's embarrassing it's terrible what me. we ask families to do like I I understand the importance of like I know we have to to impart into people how parents how important it is to apply moisturizer and apply all the medicated creams but then when you think about like the actual life oh, burden like yeah. the number of minutes like if those people had a Fitbit for minutes that they spend applying <laughs> treatment creams it would be it would be crazy like it's a huge amount it's a huge time commitment yeah. and so in a lot of cases i think in the past um dermatologists have sometimes been hesitant to prescribe systemic therapies but when you just when you think about the burden on the family and then the potential impact of like a child who has psoriasis who might not be able to 
socialize the way they want to, mm-hmm. do the activities they want to, run for class president. I don't know. It, it could it yeah. can change a life trajectory, and that's the part I think that sometimes we minimize because we kind of tell them, "Oh, you're going to grow out of this over time." But then, how much have how much has their life already changed by the time that they grow out of it and that they're able to live a normal life? Super good point, and it's it's very true. And I think you know, as physicians, it's imperative that we get over our hesitancy or, or nervousness to prescribe things that are in the best interest of, of the patient. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, in dermatology, at least, I think a lot of pediatric patients that don't have access, uh, maybe don't get that type of level. And, and you know, it's, um, that's, that's hard to, to reconcile. Um, but fortunately, some kids are getting systemic therapy. So I just want to ask you about one more conventional systemic in psoriasis before we, we talk about biologics and that's acetretin. And so, you know, I, I use a fair amount of acetretin in postmenopausal women or, or men, but occasionally I'll be at a conference or I'll read a paper and, you know, some nine-year-old girl will be given acetretin and I'm just, you know, I, I'm taken aback. Um, and I don't, is it something that you use? Am I now, you know, one of those people that doesn't want to use something that's maybe right for the patient? I, Acetretin in, in kids kind of freaks me out. What do you what do you think? Yeah. So I hear what you're saying because because it does stick around in the fat for several years after discontinuation, like I think we quote three years. Mm-hmm. Um so it is definitely a concern and I think I think about it more. Maybe maybe it's naive of me to think that these girls don't want to be pregnant so early, but I tend to think <laughs> of it more as they're getting into the teen years. Right. Like a a, ch- a girl who's like you know, 14, 15, 16, not that they're planning to become pregnant. And, but I think it's, I think definitely that's the population where I'm thinking about it more, also because they're going to like, you know, they're going to probably drink some alcohol and esterify it and like, it's going to be around forever. So, um, or whatever that modification is called. I don't know if it's a esterification. Re-esterification. Thank you. But yes, um, I think azotretin can be a good treatment for some patients there are, I think there's, there are definitely barriers to using it. One of the big barriers is that class effect of retinoids and like mm-hmm. the mood and having to talk patients and families through that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, when we didn't have biologics, I definitely feel like when we didn't have biologic for peds anyways, I should say, then I felt like I was more likely to use acetretin. But then I had, I had a couple of patients where there were questions that came about a about came up about premature epiphyseal closure, mm-hmm. which is actually a huge issue for particularly, I'd say it's more of an issue for male patients who are not at their maximal height yet and who might, right. who might be athletic and want to pursue some kind of competitive career. Yeah. Because if you end up somehow, if somehow the child ends up less than mid parental height, there's always going to be this question about whether it was related to the acetretin or not. And so I've had, it just, it takes a lot of, I guess the, the bottom line with acetretin now is that I feel like it's maybe, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like the calcineurin inhibitors used to be. <laughs> like sometimes it just feels like the counseling's not worth it. Right. And that we have other options that are easier to use. Like a premolast would certainly be a lot easier to use than yeah. acetretin. And, yeah. um, and so I think I have used less of it, but there probably is that population that would do really well on acetretin. Like pustular psoriasis, I guess, would probably do. Right. Poms and souls involvement would probably do really well. But those are also populations now where I would be thinking sooner about trying to get them 
a biologic either through a compassionate program or um or yeah or just potentially like advocating more for their case because they are more severe now you mentioned a premolas let's talk about that for a second because i did i kind of forgot about that in the in the scheme do you use much premolas in kids and what's been your general experience with it I haven't actually used much of Permalas for psoriasis. I've used it more in the context of recurrent abscess ulcers or bachettes, bachettes yeah. in pediatrics, and okay. it it works really well. The side effects are are unfortunate. Like unfortunately, the GI side effects can be mm-hmm. really bad, much like they are in in adults. Like I think the and I think at that part- when you get a teenager who ends up with like yeah. increased frequency of bowel movements, it's really problematic for them. Yeah. Like it's pretty much the reason, anyone who have had discontinue, it's because of that. They just can't okay. get through the first, even with, after the first two weeks. And the other issue, I guess, is that past beyond uh, the those starter packs, which have the mm-hmm. lower doses, like the 10 and 10, and then I think you gradually go up 10, 20 and 10, 30, or 30, 30 eventually. Um, the you can't over the long term get a smaller dose than 30 milligrams so they either have to break the tab or there's not a good way to adjust the dose right now that's too bad actually although i have heard that a premolas probably will relatively soon be uh, genericized so we may have options for for different doses um okay now maybe shifting gears into the biologic realm and you know obviously some of our um biologics for psoriasis have approval in kids um what are your okay so again I, you're, you'll say with the answer any answer would be well it would depend on the kid and depend on the history blah 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 um but again like let's go back to our seven-year-old guy um who has no joint disease you gave him his methotrexate he marginally improved maybe he improved about 30 percent and now you're moving on to a biologic how do you make the choice about which one you're going to use in a pediatric population I should just say that there are some, for the residents, there are some really good publications. Actually, there's a very good Canadian publication on the use of biologics in pediatric psoriasis. Okay. uh, That was published in 2020 in the JAD. Uh, And I wasn't an author because I, and I, and to be honest, I don't consider myself an expert in pediatric psoriasis. Carrie, you can (laughs) cut this part out if you don't like it. (laughs) No way. After we just talked about conventional therapy for psoriasis for so long. Don't listen to anything Michelle just said. I'm just kidding. No, you know what? You're a pediatric dermatology expert. You're you're far beyond what the vast majority of us have in terms of expertise, whether it's specifically in psoriasis or your more beloved area of atopic dermatitis, which we'll move on to next. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, well, when it comes to biologics, like... I think the disc- the discussion's really similar to what it is in adults now because we there are a few we have several good options you know we have like you have uh, ustekinumab which is Stelara we have um, you can get Taltz which it would be mm-hmm. Ixacizumab Cosentix Secukinumab you can get a, a Tanercept which I would say that I don't really use that much for psoriasis mm-hmm. and Humira is available for other indications. Adalimumab is available for other indications. So you could get that for psoriasis too. in the patient who had like other comorbidities, I suppose. And right. infliximab, which again, I just don't use because Less it's intravenous. Likely. Yeah. But, um, I, I think it really, de- it really depends on like number of injections is a big one mm-hmm. for patients. So Stelara or Ustekinumab tends to be kind of an early choice. It's easy to get. Mm-hmm. Um, patients only need to have, like they have their loading dose and then they, or they have their first two doses one month apart and then it's every three months. 
So it's just really convenient for them. And yeah. I've had patients have really great results on it. And it's, and it's relatively, and I think it's like more, it's more targeted, um, tends to be pretty durable in terms of response as well. So I have a lot of happy patients on Stellara. Um, but I guess the other biologics, I haven't used the IL-17s as often because they used to be off-label, but I did, mm-hmm. I did use them in adolescence previously and I found that some of the IL-17s, like if a patient is willing to have more frequent injections, they can maybe clear a bit more quickly than with Stelera if the person had yeah. an event coming up. Um, but I think I, I kind of consider them equivalent. I would say if the, in the patient that has no comorbidities, okay. um, I would kind of think of those the same. I don't know. It's different in adults for you. No, I mean, at this point, I feel like I just need a dark board and just droop, and then pick yeah. whatever, There's wherever like, so I hit. They're, they're both like pretty so good they're options. also good to be honest yeah. like I, I think when it comes to to needle frequency it's something that's talked about regularly in adult in the adult population but i'm not sure it's quite as pertinent but i definitely think in the pediatric population you know decreased yeah. frequency of injections is probably a big selling point um so you know I, I i think that's probably i do have a few kids or probably you know adolescents in the you know 11 12 13 on uh used to kenyamab myself and they they love it um Okay. Now in terms of your biologic, like we kind of already talked earlier about where you're starting your workup for the systemic patient for psoriasis. But you know, for me, when I have an adult on a long-term biologic, once a year I do blood work and I say I do it to make myself feel better, not because it's required. Do you do monitoring of any sort in, in kids that are on biologic or not? Yeah. So the recommendation for psoriasis is to do uh, kind of routine blood work for comorbidities once a year and so that's I guess that's that I do once yearly blood work but then I and I also see them well I see them at least once a year probably once Mm -hmm. every six months and I just screen for new development of symptoms so for example I had a patient recently who's on Stelera who started having more joint problems and had not had those previously on methotrexate so then I wondered oh does she actually have like arthritis that was partially treated by her methotrexate and now it's not as well controlled. So there are new symptoms. And I think the risk of comorbidities within, I guess the risk of pediatric patients with just psoriasis going on to develop comorbidities is higher right. because we're catching them just earlier in their disease. So even if they screen negative at the beginning, getting their, you know, getting their eyes checked once a year, asking them about morning stiffness and or in some kids, in very young kids, you may not be able to even get those kind of answers. But right. I think even just asking if like their physical activity seems the same, or if their parents notice they're kind of slow in the morning can be helpful. And yeah. then, um, yes, and then I guess the, in, like the inflammatory bowel disease associated cases, those ones, I feel like I don't ever really see those ones first, <laughs> but I would probably screen for those symptoms as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess thinking about screening comorbidities in the younger group makes a lot of sense. Whereas many of the times in adults, they already, you know, have hypertension, diabetes when you see them. So, Um, okay. Well, that's a great review, I think, of psoriasis treatment in pediatrics. But let's, uh, let's move on over to your, uh, like I said, your, your comfort zone of uh, atopic dermatitis. Uh, And so, you know, I, I feel like if we were having this conversation, even, you know, five, six years ago, it would be more limited. We'd be spending a lot of time talking about methotrexate and cyclosporin. I'm assuming for the purposes of atopic dermatitis, you you manage methotrexate and cyclosporin similarly. 
to yes. how you would in psoriasis. Okay, so let's let's go beyond that. Once you've done your your topicals, you've done your um, lifestyle measures, you've done your systemics. Um, let's talk about the next steps for biologics in atopic dermatitis. So, I guess I would just mention the one difference for me between eczema and psoriasis is prednisone. Yes, yeah, sorry, um, because, you did mention that earlier. Yes. Let's let's and briefly I don't, talk about that. Well, so yeah. yeah, so I don't I don't like to give prednisone, and I used to say like I used to say that I never give prednisone, and then I moved to Alberta, and nobody has insurance, so <laughs> it's impossible to give cyclosporin to all of these patients that have terrible yes. skin yes. because it would be so costly for them. So what I have started doing is oftentimes after they've done their baseline treatment, if they're starting methotrexate, or if they're uh, if it's a patient where I think maybe kind of a short course of something would get them better or get them back on track with their topicals, I sometimes will give them intramuscular triamcinolone. Okay. Or, um, yeah, very, very occasionally oral prednisone. It's funny because here in Nova Scotia, we, we almost never use IM Kenalog. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even, I never did it during residency and I've not done it in the last, 11 years of practice. So I'm not going to lie, but you know, obviously that has a tendency to self taper. Um, Mm -hmm. if you do use oral steroid, what type of taper generally do you do? Like, are you like a Mm -hmm. a quick over three weeks? Do you spread it out over longer? What's your, you know, again, just like average comer. Yes, I guess. So if it was a really bad, if it was a bad flare, I, I sometimes I'll go like a 0.5 to one milligram per kilogram, for like five five to seven days. The crazy thing is these patients actually do clear up that quickly. Like yeah, even if they, they look do, eh? like these yeah. pediatric patients, even if they look terrible, usually five to seven days in five to seven days they're totally clear. So if they if it's a family that's really, really diligent and can do, you know, intensive topical therapy and baths and wet wraps and whatever, then sometimes they're okay with just that short duration and then you don't need to taper. Mm-hmm. But otherwise I would probably do that I would do the five to seven days kind of full dose and then try and taper them over a four week period but I, okay. I I don't know how like other people taper I don't taper by equal amounts I taper rapidly above physiologic and then more slowly once they get to like the physiologic doses I feel like if we asked um 10 dermatologists we'd have 10 yeah everyone ta- would be different right <laughs> 10 tapering yeah. routines um but uh, yeah, that's a fair point. And I, and I think I just make a little plug here. I know we're talking about systemic treatment, but wet wraps really do play a role for, for kids. And, you know, maybe just some of the residents may not have ever done or heard of wet wraps. So could you just give us your two minute briefing on oh, sure. what is, what yeah. is a wet wrap? Cause I, I like, this is one of the things I learned from you and I, I think it's um, very useful uh, clinically to get those really hot patients um, feeling better. Yeah, I guess the big thing is to make sure your patient's not infected before you put the one wet wrap. Uh, so like yes. maybe swab them first first off if you're thinking that that they could be super infected or you could even start them on Empiric Keflex while you're waiting for your swabs to come back. But the easiest way to do wet wraps is actually just to use two layers of clothing. So in babies, I recommend a onesie. So a, a damp so they, the, for example, the baby takes their bath. Well, the parents give the baby their bath <laughs> and then they apply the medicated cream on the eczema areas, the moisturizing cream on the whole body. And then they take a, a set of the baby pajamas, like the onesie pajamas. They run them under the faucet under warm water, wring them out, apply the damp pajamas, then dry pajamas over top. 
and the baby can sleep like that. And for some babies, it's it's very soothing. Mm-hmm. So it helps to reduce their itch so that they can sleep. And the key is really to raise the temperature in the bedroom by two or three degrees so that they're okay. not too cold. Yeah. Thank and you. that you could do the same process with like any size. I don't know that they make onesies that are, you know... Well, I think they probably uh, do make size 12 to 14 high. onesies. Yeah, not going to go pretty I think they yeah. have adult size onesies these days. It's like all the rage. So Yeah, but any type of anyone. kind of like to double layer clothing, you want something that's kind of light, ideally cotton, maybe like thinking of like long johns. You can visualize long johns. It's probably a pretty practical way to do it. Yeah. No, thank you for that sojourn off to wet wraps. I do think they have quite a good, uh, quite a good role. Okay, so okay, so we've talked a little bit about methotrexate, cyclosporine, and then prednisone with respect to atopic dermatitis. Now we're into the world of uh, dupilumab first. Maybe you know mm-hmm. how do you? What's been your general experience? How does it differ than using it in in adults, or does it? Yeah, the big difference is the is the needles mm-hmm. because in adults we don't ever think about the needles, but in kids it's a huge deal because some of them are on, on Q2 weeks. And so those ones are, are really a challenge, I would say. And needle phobia is surprisingly more prevalent than I thought it would be even in older some older kids mm. because many atopics are relatively healthy right. other than their eczema. Yeah. So they've just never, they're not people that have had a lot of blood work in the past. They're not people who've had a lot of needles. Um, so there can be a lot of issues around the needle itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like my, so my general feeling for, with Dupixent is that it works really great in like a percentage of the population. And I would say that some out of the patients that I have who were able to get access to the medication, I'd say it's really great for 80%. Okay. And then there's, there's this other small group that doesn't seem to respond quite as well. And I don't have a good explanation exactly for why many of them improve, but not significantly enough to really have relief or be mm-hmm. able to have the the kind of normal life that I sell them on when I try to get them on systemic therapy. <laughs> you so I have I do have patients who are on Dupixent in combination with uh, methotrexate or weekend cyclosporine. That's the other thing we didn't talk about with oh, yeah. cyclosporine. I forgot okay. to mention weekend cyclosporine. That's more of a European thing, but I. Oh have used that quite a bit too because I think it makes it safer. You could keep the patient on for longer. Yeah. So it's basically Saturday and Sunday they take cyclosporine and the rest of the week they don't. That's kind of cool. It's like my weekend Accutane and adult rosacea people that I can't get off. Um, (laughs) So, and uh, I thought of one other question that I'm going to go back and ask you after, but but on the topic of of dupilumab, have you had Mm -hmm. much... Um, trouble with say like you know conjunctivitis or ocular symptoms in kids in particular or do you find it's pretty similar to the adult population I think it's very I think it's very similar okay Um, the pediatric ophthalmologists at the hospital at where I work are very interested in atopic dermatitis and ocular surface disease so they tend to get they will see if I'm starting a patient on dupixent and they and if I've I've identified that they've previously had some kind of eye problem and I won't be more specific than that because often like we just ask them like have you ever had eye problems before because no one can tell you what type of eye problems they've actually had (laughs) Um, so we I will often refer them to ophthalmology and they'll have a quick look and they'll kind of optimize them and it's they do the same things but you can imagine like putting an eye drop in a baby's eyes way harder than even adults have trouble with eye drops but (laughs) kids have a lot of trouble with eye drops and I've only had a I've had two patients develop 
conjunctivitis on Dupixent, not severe enough that they needed to stop, but they did need eye drops and they were seen kind of urgently. And it looks, it looks really impressive. And I think it is something that makes the parents really nervous. So right. it is nice to have a good relationship where you can get them into ophthalmology quickly or, and yeah. if, and in the case that you wouldn't have access to a pediatric ophthalmologist and the child starts developing red eyes, I mean, even, or maybe even preemptively starting an eye drop is something that mm-hmm. I've been thinking about doing just because getting a kid used to eye drops while their eyes are not irritated is probably a good idea too. <laughs> That's an excellent tip for sure. Mm-hmm. So in those in those patients that that have a suboptimal or you know fail result with uh, dupixent, right now you may not have a lot of other options. But what are you most looking forward to in terms of options that may be on the horizon for for that group? Yeah. So if you want to say so, you don't. <laughs> sure. Okay. So for right now, what I would do in a patient who's failing dupilumab is that I might try and dose optimize them. Okay. Although I think in peds sometimes. Um, Sometimes more frequent dosing is actually not better. They actually seem, if you look at the studies, like some of them seem to do better on the four, on the Q4. So maybe mm. it's actually the dose that you have to increase and not the frequency. Okay. And then I, I might stop if they were having a lot of side effects from the Dupixin and not improving. I might stop it and consider something. So I still use IVIG sometimes for okay. my really severe topics who don't respond to anything else. Okay. Or I might uh, try and add on a little bit of methotrexate or like weekend cyclosporin like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, that is that is pretty much it. And then I guess the thing that is that recently I've been thinking about more often because of the recent approval is that you, you had a sitnib or mm-hmm. Rinvoc. Yeah. So I have a few, I had a list of p- these patients that had failed Dupixent. And basically once it became available... I called them all and told them that we had a new we had a new plan. Yeah. The one big challenge with dupilumab that I've had so far is access mm-hmm. because there hasn't been for there's for some patients there's no data. Yeah. And to be and on a practical on a practical level many uh, private insurers have not reviewed the data for 12 to 17 yet. So yeah. adolescents like even if it's approved for 6 to 6 to 12 or 6 and up now really um, the particular insurance company or insurance plan may not have reviewed that data yet. So there's no way to get them coverage. And that can be really frustrating for the patients. And I think it's frustrating for us too, because we end up putting in all these applications that don't get covered. So um, I think the nice thing in in contrast to that is that with uh, Rinvoc or Upedicinib that just became available, if the patients meet criteria, there is a bridging program. Mm So I think that that is really going to help our patients because there is a, there's still a significant, even having a very good biologic for eczema that is more targeted, that's safer, that works well for their atopic comorbidities, like those kids who have like bad asthma and food allergies and eosinophilic esophagitis too. Like it's nice to have that medication, but then sometimes very, very frustrating or very difficult to know that we have it and we can't get it. Yeah. So there will be other options available soon. And that's something that's really exciting. There's going to be new topicals, topical jack inhibitors. There'll be more yeah. biologics, different targets for the biologics too, and different targets for small molecules. So it's, it's really exciting. And it is going to take a while to trickle down to pediatrics. But mm-hmm. um, I can tell you, I already have a few off-label upadacitinib patients from before it was approved for atopic dermatitis and it is it's life-changing for these patients to finally have something that works 
Yeah. So yeah, 100%. Now, and just, I guess if you have some of those patients, you may um, be able to weigh in on this piece, which is, I think, you know, sometimes these, these jacks or targeted jacks, uh, there's all these different messages floating around, you know, well, it's, it's not the same as uh, tofacitinib, which which it's not, or, you know, safety's okay. And then on the flip side, oh, no, 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 they're very unsafe, VTE, acne, you know, what's been your general experience with jacks in kids um, and, the, and the side effect profile? Like, are you, are you wary? Are you pretty comfortable? Yeah, so my, um, the patient that I've had on an off-label jack the longest is also on IVAG. Okay. So he gets monthly blood work and everything, and he's been on it now for about six months and we've been dropping his IVAG dose and he's continued. This is a patient who has probably the worst atopic dermatitis that I have ever seen. And he's finally, he's actually clear, Wow, which is amazing. And his IVAG dose is coming down. So I don't think it's the IVAG and his blood work has been pristine, like perfect the whole time. And I guess the nice thing about having him on IVG is that I get this regular blood work. Right. Am I going to be more cautious than my first few patients who start a JAK inhibitor? Absolutely. I'm going to counsel them about all the side effects, probably because I don't have good enough data to tell them that for sure that they're not going to have those side effects. And if I don't tell them, they're going to hear it from someone else. Yeah. In my first few patients who I have enrolled for jack inhibitors i have explained the risk of uh, blood clots and i base and i basically explain the symptoms to look for um and, and i try to do that in a non-scary way which is a little a little bit challenging i would say especially when it comes to pe but um i also explained about the risk of infections and the risk of hematologic malignancies but i think as we get better data we're going to be able to distinguish the different types of jack inhibitors better and maybe we will have that familiarity to be able to say and that experience on data to be able to say that we don't have to worry about many of those things in our particular population and with the more specific jacks yeah agreed fingers crossed okay that was a pretty whirlwind coverage of uh systemic therapies in psoriasis and atopic dermatitis before I let you off the hook. I have a couple of rapid fire systemic questions with uh, that pertain okay. to pediatrics. Number one, do you have any, do you provide, now maybe you let the PSP do this, but do you give the parents any tips on actually giving the injections to pediatrics? I know you, I've heard you talk about like doing, you know, needles and things with the buzzy bee, um, but do you give parents any home tips for, you know, when they may be giving biologic injections? Most of the really young patients that I have come in for their injections. Okay. So we, and we have an amazing service called Child Life, which is like a child, there's like child psychologists and social workers okay. who work a lot about distraction techniques because I, although I think the Buzzy Bee or, or the other thing you could use would be an electric toothbrush mm-hmm. used proximal to the injection can be helpful. It is not as helpful as helping the patient to be mindful mm-hmm. about the process because this is something that they are going to have to be on long-term. So the sooner that they get comfortable, I guess, with the idea of an injection, the the better. And it is a long process for some kids, but uh, that it's definitely more effective than trying to jam a buzzy bee on someone's arm and then inject them. <laughs> okay, fair. <below> it. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, random... Oh, sorry, but topical lidocaine oh, yeah. is good. Topical lidocaine. Topical lidocaine, okay. at least an hour beforehand, very helpful. Okay. Um, this is not related to psoriasis or eczema at all, but I find sometimes when the concept of isotretinoin comes up in young kids, like kids under 10, sometimes parents um, and providers are kind of freaking out. But 
you know, do you have any specific concerns if you had a severe acne? Because I feel like I'm seeing more severe acne in younger kids, like nine, eight. Um, Do you have any specific concerns for that younger population or just same old? Not related to specifically to isotretinoin, but you know, there's that age where acne is very abnormal, which would be like three to seven. Yes. And then you should be looking for endocrine reasons for them to have absolutely um, such severe acne. But I think I think that we, like the studies show that the average age at which puberty occurs is like, is coming down. So we're going to see acne in these younger patients too. And I guess the main thing is to really ensure that we counsel the patients and the families properly to know what to look for in terms of like side effects. And I guess the big one that stands out to me again is like the premature epiphyseal closure, not to make all the residents like crazy yeah, now, jumpy. Now about they're this. all ordering <laughs> long bone x-rays and don't but do that. Guys. That's the one that like is difficult to predict and it's not really known whether it's related to many of those patients having other syndromes that would have also caused the premature epiphyseal closure or if it's actually related to isotretinoin because the number of reports is so low. But I think it's kind of like avascular necrosis of a major joint. It's just something that you have to put it out there. Yes. From a, like from a medical legal perspective, because if you don't inform the patient about that, then that could be the one yeah. thing that like kind of catches you. Haunts you down the road. Okay. I feel like I'm remiss that I didn't ask you this earlier, but one of the things, you know, when we're doing our biologics in um, adults or, or systemics, conventional systemics, and I think I'm surprised this didn't come to top of mind with it being COVID and vaccine time, but thinking about those younger kids who haven't completed their vaccine um they haven't completed their vaccines and you're putting them on a biologic and you may have to give them you know that live mmrv booster how do you (laughs) so that's really like the like we're talking sub four to six years right yeah it's a it's not an easy question um I think in the cases that I where, I where where I've had that situation, so the the good I guess the good thing is that most atopics become really severe after they've completed their primary series, so they've at least gotten right. one, one MMR. Silver lining. <laughs> so one thing you one thing you could consider is if their eczema is terrible and you don't want to delay treatment, you could check their titers. Mm-hmm. And if they're if they're immune to like the big ones, measles really right, right? and. Yeah. The other one's varicella, I I suppose. But so you can check their measles and their varicella IgG. And if they're already immune, then you could decide to go ahead and give them whatever biologic or immunosuppressive therapy or immunomodulatory therapy you're thinking about giving them. Mm -hmm. And then at a time when their skin is better, you could withdraw the therapy for, you know, it's like five half-lives, I guess, depending on the medication Um, and, and potentially then vaccinate them and okay. put them back on their therapy afterwards. And there is there is also an ideal. And I would suggest, I'm not the expert on this, but I would suggest if you have questions like that to always c- connect with the immunologist or infectious disease person yeah. who specializes in vaccines because there is an ideal timing afterwards. There's You need at least two weeks to get a good immune response mm-hmm. and then possibly a little bit longer for certain vaccines. Yeah. And I think these are the type of questions where obviously it's not, you're not calling your friendly neighborhood infectious disease doctor every other day for one of these. This is quite rare. Right. So certainly worth, worth the, the yeah. call. Okay. Last question I want to ask is from one of the residents. Hi, Dr. Ramin. This is Rory Sutherland, a Durham resident at the University of British Columbia. I'm wondering what you would recommend as the best pediatric dermatology reference or website or textbook for dermatology residents. 
I remember yeah. studying and I had Hurwitz and I'm looking at it right now because yeah. it's in my office and, and I, I, yeah. I really I like that. I think Hurwitz actually. is the best. Okay. I, Hurwitz is the best. It's short. Um, you could read it during your pediatric blocks. It's, it's more concise. There's kind of more. And I think in Bologna, the pediatric topics are kind of spread a lot through the other. Yeah, they are. Through kind of general derm material. And so it's good to read it as part of Bologna. But um, different people study in different ways. Some people like to read it the same way over and over again. But I think when I was studying, I really liked, I tried to read everything. So I read like Bologna and Fitzpatrick and Hurwitz. And I think I also even read the big pediatric derm textbook anyways Shackner <laughs> and I can just say that Hurwitz is the way to go okay <laughs> Hurwitz is definitely the way to go <laughs> you heard yeah. it here oh, first. the only other thing Carrie I would say about the vaccination though yeah and I already gave you a long answer about this is that you know in um I think it was in what during like the Dupixent tr- clinical trial in um in South America, there was like, there was an outbreak of yellow fever. Oh. So the, when they were doing the clinical trial, they looked at like the risk benefit ratio of vaccinating these people and they actually gave them live vaccine and they while they fine. were on Dupixent and they were fine and their, and their titers were fine. Like their vaccine response was good too. And you know so what? So Dupixent's the one where it's like okay. remains to be seen, I guess, for vaccination. I was just going to say, maybe I don't, think... Yeah, okay. Well, now I'm cutting you off. I was just going to say, yeah. I think there was also a paper or like a poster some, presented somewhere that they did a you know a small study in trilokinumab looking at patients getting vaccinated for, for maybe it was uh, it was uh, DPTP and they mm-hmm. um, they all had like reasonably normal titers after treatment. So yeah, maybe it's yeah. a moot point. There isn't, I mean, there's no reason in my mind, there would be no reason to hold Dupixin for um, a kill, like an inactivated vaccine, but the live vaccines like, yeah live mechanically or... like it shouldn't make a difference but i think that we just don't have enough evidence yet and then the immunologists say that like il4 and 4 and 13 are important to develop like the memory okay part of the response okay hmm. Hmm. tbd tbd michelle thank you for spending the time for answering all my questions uh turns out i knew even less about systemic treatments in pediatric dermatology than I thought. So thank you for the refresher. Thank you for joining me. Um, And uh, I'm sure I will harass you to join me again at some point uh, for another pediatric dermatology topic because it's always uh, much needed. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was lots of fun. That was Dr. Michelle Ramin, who in addition to everything we talked about at the beginning also has three busy boys at home. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Mm-hmm.